The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Our God, by hearing from His Word. This morning we are in Galatians chapter 5. I invite you to turn there now to Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 of Galatians 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's not give our attention as God speaks to us in His holy and inspired Word. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working in love. Amen. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it by the powerful working of his spirit. Well, on March 23rd, 1775, at the Virginia Convention, Patrick Henry likely uttered these famous words, Give me liberty or give me death. The way he saw it was that there are two choices, and only two choices, that were mutually exclusive. Either there is liberty or there is death. Of course, he wanted liberty. And this is actually true in a much more important realm. The spiritual realm. Either you have liberty or freedom in Christ, or you have death. Either you have been freed by Christ from the law as a covenant of works, where you must perform it if you want eternal life, and perform it perfectly in order to avoid eternal death, or you're still under the law, and therefore you are under the sentence of death. There's either liberty or there's death. And so what I want to look at are two opposing principles. That is the difference between liberty and death. The first is the works of the law. And then the second is the spirit of faith. So first, the works of the law. Paul begins by saying in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, contrary to popular opinion, this verse is actually not about America. Now, our civil liberties are obviously important, and not being under a tyrannical government is an important principle. 
But that comes from natural revelation. That comes from natural law. This verse right here is focusing on not the civil realm, but the spiritual realm. This verse comes after everything Paul has just got done saying in chapter 4 regarding not coming under the law, being freed from the old covenant, being freed from offering up obedience in order to achieve a righteous standing before God. It's a context in which Paul speaks this. And so, setting us free in Christ, being set free by Christ, refers to being set free from the guilt, condemnation, and rigor of the law. Trying to keep it in order to have a righteous standing before God and avoid His condemnation. I think chapter 21 of our Confession of Faith sums this up well, where it says, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the Gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law. The Lord has freed us from this. He has freed us from the law as a covenant of works, doing it for life rather than from life. And our verse says that Christ is the one who has set us free. How has Christ set us free? Well, Christ has set us free from the law as this covenant of works by coming under it for us. As Galatians 4 says, He was born under the law. He was liable to perform its requirements and to do it perfectly. To do it perfectly even under a test. What was required of us, He came and did. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so that we who believe would get credit for His obedience as if we had done it. His obedience, His perfect righteousness is counted as ours. We in here who have trusted in Christ. And then He took the awful condemnation of the law. He took eternal hell in our place, we in here who believe. So that we would not stand condemned. He stood condemned in our place out of His immense love so that we would be forever blessed. So that we would have eternal life by being united to Him in His death and resurrection. And therefore there is no condemnation for us who believe. And there will never be condemnation for us who believe. This the Lord has done for us. The law can never condemn us because Christ stood condemned for us. As John Calhoun, the 18th century reformer said, Now that the believer is dead to the law of works and delivered from condemnation, he has no more cause to fear its threatening of eternal death than a woman has to fear the threats of a dead husband. And so Paul commands the Galatians and us to stand firm in not coming back under the law in this way. Paul is saying, don't go back under the law as a covenant of work. Why would you do that when Christ has fulfilled the law for you? How could you do that? Don't submit to these false teachers that are telling you otherwise. 
And so Paul addresses their specific situation with how they would come back under this yoke of slavery. In verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So far from being a minor addition to faith in Christ, adding circumcision, it would actually render Christ of no advantage to them. And notice he doesn't say less advantage, but rather no advantage. And Paul explains why in verse 3. says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. To show how serious this is, this time he invokes an oath, saying, I testify. He's coming under oath. This is serious. He says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Now you may wonder something here. Didn't Paul have Timothy get circumcised? So why does Paul say what he's saying here in Galatians 5, and then... He has Timothy get circumcised. Well, Paul was having Timothy get circumcised for a different reason than why the Galatians wanted to get circumcised. Paul's purpose was for the advancement of the gospel. In order to put no stumbling block in the way as the gospel goes to the Jews. He was becoming all things to all people. But when it came to Titus, if you remember, he refused to have Titus get circumcised as they ministered the gospel to the Gentiles. That would actually put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel, bringing, them to the gent- bringing it to the Gentiles. But the reason that the Galatians wanted to get circumcised is because false teachers were saying it was necessary in order to have a righteous standing before God. Now they were not saying, set aside faith in Christ, faith in Christ is worthless, set that completely aside. They weren't saying that. They were saying, yes, faith in Christ. Yes, believe in Christ. That's good. But there's more. You need to just add this one thing. And of course, by adding it, they were assuming you need to keep the law. But if you just add this one thing, then you will have a righteous standing before God. Trusting in Christ alone does not bring you a righteous standing before God, is what the false teachers were saying. Therefore, you needed to supply something to that. And Paul says, if you do that, you are not merely obligated to get circumcised and that's it and think it's over, but rather you are obligated to keep the whole law. This is because anytime you add anything or anytime you come under any sort of work, you add just one work, you are now operating under the principle of works rather than hearing with faith, apart from any works of the law. You have come back under the law, and when you come back under the law in any sense, if you want to sign up for that, if you want to go that route, this is how it works with the law. It's all or nothing. You want to go that route? It's not just adding a little work. It's now you're obligated to keep the whole thing personally, perfectly, Perpetually. 
It's either all or nothing. And so, because those who come back under the law by receiving circumcision are now operating by a works principle rather than by faith, Paul says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. To get circumcised in order to have a righteous standing before God means that you are trying to be justified by the law, Paul says. To do anything or to have any other commandment, to have any other righteousness by which you think you stand righteous before God to finalize a righteous standing before God saying Christ gave me a great start but I need to finish it is to try to be justified by the law and this is to be severed from Christ to be cut off from him you notice the play of words that Paul is using here they want to cut off part of their flesh and circumcision, and in so doing, they actually cut themselves off from Christ. To go back to works of the law in any sense in order to have a righteous standing before God is the opposite principle of grace, which is receiving a free gift by simply believing, by simply resting on Christ, by simply trusting in Him. And thus Paul says here, they have fallen from grace. Now, some have severely misunderstood this verse. Some have interpreted to fall away from grace as you can lose your salvation. But here is a really important tip to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible. And this really needs to be understood, especially in our day. And that is, don't use the bumper sticker or refrigerator magnet method of interpreting the Bible. You know what I mean by that? You take one verse out of context and you just look at that verse and you don't consider the rest of the Bible. That's what I mean by that. Anytime we interpret any verse scripture, it needs to be considered in light of the whole of scripture. And any conclusion we arrive at from any verse in scripture cannot contradict the theology of the Bible, what the Bible teaches as a whole elsewhere. So if we conclude that we can lose our salvation, then we are at odds with what Paul says elsewhere. For example, Romans 8.30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Paul says from predestination, God setting His love upon us before time began, destining us for heaven, destining us for salvation, to glorification, to us being glorified in heaven, perfected in heaven. God's the one who does that in an unbreakable chain. You were listening carefully. Those whom He, these He also, and all the way through, God is the one who's doing it. And so those whom God justified, that is those whom He declares righteous, those whom He has saved, because you can't be saved apart from being justified. Those whom He justified, these are the ones that He will most certainly glorify. 
The justified ones are the same ones that will be the glorified ones. And the reason we can have full confidence in that is because God is the one who does the work throughout. Because God is the one who saves, and because He is in no way dependent on man or helpless. That's even blasphemous to think about. All who He saves will never be lost. Jesus said in John 10, I give my sheep eternal life, and they, my sheep, will never perish. Trust Jesus is telling the truth, don't you? And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Can God's power fail? So there is nothing, so there is no losing one salvation because it's not your work, it's God's work. If it is your work, you would lose it. But if it's God's work, and who can stop God's hand? So we need to interpret what Paul is saying here in light of the rest of Scripture. So what does Paul mean then by saying you have fallen from grace? Well, I believe there's two senses in which this can apply. The first is this. It's to fall away from the faith. That is to apostatize, as it's been called. There was a time where they seemed to have believed the gospel but in reality, they did not. John addresses this in 1 John 2.19 when he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So even though they used to be among us, hence they went out from us. That assumes that they used to be among us. They were members of the church. They were part of us in that sense. They ended up leaving. They left the church and her doctrine. And that reveals not that they lost their salvation, but as John says here, they were never of us to begin with. Otherwise, they would have continued with us. Jesus talks about this in his parable of the seeds, where some seed falls on rocky soil, the people who reject the word. And others fall on good soil. Uh, they receive the, the word and bear fruit. But then there's another category. The other category is those who initially received the word but then turned away. Jesus said to them in Luke 8, These are the ones who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, fall away. So the word as opposed to having no response, actually produces a measure of response in these people where they experience even a measure of joy. But then the trial comes, the testing comes, and it reveals where they truly were, that they did not have a true saving faith. They had a superficial response to the Word of God, and they leave. From our perspective, it may seem like they had faith, but because they left, even though they were among us for a while, they did not have a true saving faith. And the language that Scripture uses to describe this is that of falling away. 
God knew their heart the whole time. They didn't truly believe. To us, it seems like they did because they're not out there shouting at us or self-proclaimed atheists. They're actually part of our church. But then they end up turning away. I still remember a man named Gary. He was a roommate of mine. He seemed to have been saved while uh, in jail. And uh, the pastors were telling us, this guy's going to encourage you when he gets out of jail. You know, they were visiting with him. He's going to encourage you. He's on fire for the Lord. And by all accounts, it really seemed that way. He had people in tears at his baptism when he was given the testimony, his testimony. It was so wonderful to, to hear of what seemed like the grace of God working in his life. I remember going to a rescue mission with him. We would uh, preach there. Uh, our church would had a time slot on a Sunday evening to go preach to uh, people at this homeless shelter. And I remember him coming with us once. And he was going to do the Spanish one, and I was going to do the English one, but nobody showed up for the Spanish one. And so I, I said, Brother, why don't you why don't you preach? And he did such a wonderful job in preaching Christ and causing us to adore him. But within a year, he was explicitly denying Christ. What happened? Well, Scripture says he fell away. God knew his heart the whole time. To us, we don't know. It appeared that something was going on. He had a response. But then he fell away because he did not truly have saving faith. So in that sense, Paul can be referring to this. But I think there's another sense also, falling from grace, uh, for true believers, and that's those who fall into sin. Every believer falls into sin at times. And this particular sin is the sin of legalism. For a time, they may fall back into works righteousness. In fact, this is always an ongoing temptation for us. I think we focus a lot on, I don't want to fall into the lust of the flesh. But the other temptation I think we tend to overlook is this sin of legalism. Where we think we can do something to advance in righteousness before God. This is why we need the gospel proclaimed to, to us every Lord's Day. This is why we need it visibly portrayed. To us, because we have this ongoing temptation in every one of our hearts. And so when we fall from a principle of grace and back into this principle of works, trying to measure up before God, I just sinned, oh, i got to try to make up for it somehow. Oh, I can't draw near to God because I'm not righteous enough. That is falling back into this sin of legalism. And in that sense, in that sense, it can be said we've fallen from grace, although every believer will renew his repentance and turn back uh, to the Lord. So we always need to be deepening our belief in the gospel to guard us against this temptation. And this brings us to the second opposing principle that highlights the difference between liberty and death, and that is the spirit of faith. Look at verse 5. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So this is the opposing principle of falling from grace, falling into legalism, wanting to be justified by the law. Is what we read here in verse 5, and that is, through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope 
of righteousness. Paul mentions, Paul's mention of spirit here is going to be a theme that's going to run throughout chapter 5, the difference between the spirit and the flesh. And so we see here that to want to be justified by the law actually comes from the flesh because it's the opposite of operating by faith by the spirit. The Spirit produces the faith in us to believe the gospel, and this faith leads to eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. So we see faith and hope go together because faith believes God's promise. It believes that He will do what He says, and therefore it leads us to eagerly expect it. We are waiting for heaven. Kids, I want to address you for a moment to help you understand this. If mommy or daddy said, we are going on vacation, we're going somewhere exciting, would you be excited about that? Yeah, you would be really excited, wouldn't you? But why would you be excited before actually having it? Before actually going on vacation, you're excited, you're counting down the days. Well, it's because you believe your parents' promise. We are going to do this. And when you believe that, you get excited. And that's called hope. And it has to be for a good thing. Because if your parents said, we're going to the dentist and he's going to drill your teeth, you're not going to be very excited about that, will you? But if it's something good, you're going to say, yeah, I'm excited because I believe what my parents said and I trust that it's good. And that's what hope is. Hope is believing God's word. He's promised heaven and that's good. Because of that, we are excited about it. We eagerly wait for it. The Holy Spirit has caused us to believe God's promise of heaven that we will most certainly be there, that there will be a resurrection, the everlasting life to be forever satisfied in the presence of God, that we're not going to grow bored with God. God is going to thrill our hearts for all of eternity because He is an eternal being and altogether glorious. And this is said to be the hope of righteousness. This is the hope that comes from being righteous by faith. If we are trying to be righteous by our keeping of the law, trying to measure up, making sure that we're really good at keeping the rules, crossing our T's, dotting our I's, adding extra rules just to make sure our righteousness is pristine, then we're going to be anxious. Or we're going to have fear rather than an eager expectation of hope. Have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Am I going to get this sin taken care of before Judgment Day? Rather than resting on receiving Christ and His perfection, knowing that He was judged in our place, when we grasp that, that He is our righteousness. And we have all the righteousness we need in Him to be assured of this hope of heaven. Then we eagerly await it. 
We rest assured in His love for us and providing us with the perfect righteousness, all the righteousness we need to stand before God. As Paul says here, this is not a hope we work for. This is a hope we wait for. And when we believe this, which includes seeing the value of what God has promised, seeing it as good and desirable, then this is the hope we look forward to. But if we're not believing this, if we're not convinced of its goodness, then we will find other hopes of this world, other things to pursue. This leads to us just being as busy as we can, to be distracted from the emptiness and void we feel. It leads to looking to other things as our rock, things of this world. Church becomes about keeping up an image, being a good person, keeping the rules to look or be righteous, but without a genuine love for God. Or it's about how many friends we have, how many people like us, how many people talk to us, how many activities they are. It becomes very self-centered rather than drawing near to God through His Word. When the Holy Spirit grants us faith, and when this faith is fanned into flame by His Word, by His Word, sacraments, and prayer, then we are filled with this hope of righteousness, this hope that comes from the righteousness that's been imputed to us, the obedience of Christ. And it is a hope where on the last day, God will perfect us, and we will be intrinsically righteous. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So once you get what Paul is saying here with regards to our righteous standing, that we have all we need in Christ, that it's by faith alone and not by any works of the law, then we see what Paul is saying here, that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter. It counts for nothing. When we are in Christ, as Paul says here in this verse, we have all the righteousness we will ever need. We add nothing to that. By virtue of our union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ. When Paul says in Christ Jesus, he's referring to our union with Christ, this inseparable bond with Christ. We have died with Him. We've been buried with Him. We've been raised with Him to newness of life exalted to the right hand of the Father, seated with Christ. We are with Him there now, even, Ephesians says. All our debts became His, and He paid for them all. And all His assets became ours. His righteousness. His inheritance. We have all that we need in Christ. So what is circumcision? What's physical circumcision compared to Christ? What's more, what's any external rule-keeping compared to Christ? Any man-made laws. We can replace the word circumcision here with any rules that we try to keep in order to think we're more righteous or we advance in righteousness before God. And neither wearing this particular modest clothing and not wearing that particular modest clothing counts for anything. Neither not ever tasting wine or tasting it counts for anything. Neither dancing or never have gone dancing 
counts for anything. Pastor Doug is actually really thankful for that. You know him, he's the dancing pastor. But these things do not make you any better or any more righteous before God. Now you may have personal convictions about these things, and that's perfectly legitimate. Know that before God, it does not make you any more righteous at all. It adds nothing to your righteousness before God, because in Christ, you have all the righteousness you will ever need to stand before God. So Paul says what matters then is faith working through love. So Paul is not saying obedience doesn't matter. He says obedience does matter, but it's faith working through love. And so here we see two important truths. The first is that genuine faith will result in works of love. A genuine love for God and others expressed in our attitude, affections, and actions. Of course, not perfectly. And so if we do not have a genuine saving faith, then there will not be any genuine love. Because it's only faith working through love that produces this. You may have a lot of legalism, a lot of rule keeping, focusing on others, but you will not have a genuine drive and desire to love God and others apart from faith. You must first have faith in Christ before you can love. And that's where we see the second related truth, that you must have faith in order to genuinely love. It is faith that works. It's faith that operates through love. Faith is the driving force. Now what this is not saying is that faith and love are conflated. That that faith and acts of obedience to God's law are mixed. Because that's what love is. It's obeying God's law. We do not hold to the Roman Catholic error that you have to add love to your faith in order to make it saving. Rather, a genuine saving faith, which is resting on and receiving Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. That's what faith is. Simply resting in Christ for these things. That will then lead to and produce acts of love. But without this faith, there is no power to truly and genuinely love in one's attitudes, affections, and actions. It will be like trying to use an appliance that's not plugged in. I still remember the time I was trying to make toast. What is taking so long? Kept pushing it down. Why? It's not working. What's wrong with this toast? I'm going to throw it out. Until I realized I didn't have it plugged in. But the legalist, rather than realizing that he or she lacks faith, lacks the power, well, just ask for more law. How, how do I do better? Just tell me how. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's like an appliance that's not plugged into its power source, but asking for more instruction manuals or better instruction manuals. Well, this thing's not working. Give me another instruction manual to read. Maybe it'll work then. Rather than being plugged into the only power that animates genuine love for others. Our power comes from our union with Christ through the instrument of faith. Faith 
is seeing and beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is to know His love. And when we see and know His love, that is when we reflect that same love towards others. And that is why it must be faith that works through love. And this is when we experience true liberty in the Spirit rather than death under the law. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would show us Christ, show us his love, open up the eyes of our heart that we may comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and depth and to know the love of Christ leading us to acts of love by your grace and for Christ's glory. We ask this in his name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.